Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast with Barry Jones in conversation with Kerry O'Brien, recorded live at the 2017 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Welcome to this session. Uh, And uh, while uh, I can reasonably assume that nearly everybody here, probably everybody here, knows all about this man. Maybe a few of you don't know everything. Um, so here's a very quick reminder. Uh, the quiz master, the school teacher, the historian, the lawyer, uh, the activist, particularly and passionately against the death penalty uh, in Victoria, uh, politician first in the state parliament of Victoria for the Labor opposition, uh, and then the federal Labor Party where he actually made it into government with Bob Hawke, Paul Keating and others and became science minister. Uh, Labor Party president and uh, through all of this period Barry uh, has never shirked raising the inconvenient truths, uh, particularly inside his own party, something that didn't stop when he became party president and has never stopped since. Uh, three books that Barry has written, and he's written a number, but three books that have stood out to me. One was Sleeper's Wake in 1982, uh, which was uh, a clarion call at the time and has been so pertinent in what it had to say, uh, even if all of the projections weren't exactly as he might have seen them at the time, and we're going to talk about that. But more recently, a thinking read, uh, a terrific Uh, memoir, autobiography, I would say more autobiography than memoir, Uh, and then coming out of that shock of recognition about Barry's uh, love of literature and music and those milestone aspects of music and literature that have probably in many ways governed or helped govern his life. Uh, And since we're talking, our our conversation today really is about the, the landscape of politics we find ourselves in but I'm going to merge the two here, Barry. Um, War and Peace and John Howard. (laughs) Well, back in um, 1990, uh, either late 95 or early 96, uh, I spoke to John Howard and uh, I said, I'm going to give you a copy of War and Peace. And he looked in a quite alarmed kind of way and said, why? And I said, well... I mean, I think on the balance of probabilities, you'll you'll become Prime Minister, and I happen to think that if you've read War and Peace, you'd be a better Prime Minister than if you hadn't read it. (laughs) So he said, oh, well, on on that basis, I suppose I'd better undertake to read it. So I gave it to him, and it's curious. uh, When we've met on subsequent occasions, and occasionally even been on the same platform together, he's always raised the story and always said faithfully, you know, that he had actually read War and Peace. And I often used to reflect, particularly at the time of the Iraq War, if he hadn't read it, you know, where would we be now? (laughs) Perhaps he misunderstood it. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of things we don't understand, and some sadly we do, um, this is, and I'm talking about the the democratic world, that we are in an age, it seems, of such disillusionment, of such cynicism, 
where there is such apparent wear and tear on democratic systems and where the politicians themselves, who once upon a time arrived with passion and ideals on whatever side of politics they might have been, uh, and a determination to make some kind of a mark where the politicians themselves seem to have lost their way and where political leadership is indeed very thin on the ground. So here's a really simple question that shouldn't take you more than a minute or two to answer, Barry. How have we come to this? I think to a very large extent, it, it's part of the two things, the professionalisation of politics that the people who now go into politics say, I'd like to have a career in politics because they think of it as a nice, a nice job, uh, quite well paid in, in terms of international comparison, uh, no heavy lifting, not much chance of getting a hernia uh, out of it. And the result is that uh, they say, well, uh, I'll join up to an organisation which will help promote my career. And I remember going back to the old days uh, when I used to go to Labor Party conferences uh, first. First of all, virtually all the delegates were male and that was bad. But if you looked at the people who went to those conferences, a lot of them were people who, say, were missing an eye or had a finger or two missing or who'd suffered some kind of industrial accident. They were people who actually worked hard, worked tough, some of them had gone to jail over issues, you know, related to, uh, to uh, you know, the, uh, a strike or something like that, breaking the law, demonstrating, going to jail. Very few of them had tertiary education, almost none, but what they had in common was they were passionate readers. They were passionate readers and they believed fervently in their point of view. Didn't always agree with them on a whole number of issues, but you knew where they stood. And they, and they had very, very strong beliefs. Now, what I'm conscious of now is I have the phenomenon, I'd say in my role at the University of Melbourne, I'd say at least once a week, I have somebody who comes along and says, well, I'd like to have a career in politics. And, uh, and I say to them, um, uh, you know, well, what you know, where were you inclined towards the the collectivist or the labour side or the individual and towards the conservative side? They say, well, I've I haven't really thought it out. You know, what <laughs> what do you uh, you know what what do you recommend? And uh, and then they say, and uh, you said you said, well, I'm from the labour side. I would recommend the liberals. <laughs> but that, but I'd say, well, what what are the three issues? that you feel most passionately about, and then there's a kind of look of panic. And they say, is that necessary? Is that... And then when you say, well, a lot of people I grew up with, you know, are people who've actually gone to jail for their principles, and you think really they're going to have an attack of the vapours at that, the idea that something terrible would happen, that you might go to jail over a matter of principle. So the result is, you see, part of the problem about the failure of what's happened in the Australian Parliament. We, we think of Parliament as being a bear pit, which to some extent it is, but it's, it's the theatre of the absurd. Yes. The issues that they're fighting about, on the whole, don't really matter. And, and they're, they're all part of showbiz, because on the, on the major issues 
on the major issues, the really important moral issues, like, say, climate change or refugee policy, in a sense, the two major parties are two, they're two wings of the same bird. There's an extraordinary degree of convergence, and they don't argue it through. And related to, I think with, very often with my the people in the Labour Party that I'm feeling increasingly uh, pessimistic about in some ways, although I'd have to say Bill Shorten has good days, but um, <laughs> I, I think he had I think he had three last year. Yeah, I, <laughs> uh, and then and then he'll come up with a zinger, and uh, which uh, which takes away some of some of the some of the gravitas of it all. But you see, in a sense, they really lost the capacity to win an argument. The case of the Labour Party, they have only in the last 10 years, they've really only won two contested debates. The first on work choices in 2007, and the second, I'd have to say, where, about where the, Medicare. Where, where the union movement did the work. In each or, case, yes. largely, largely did the work. But the point is that a lot of the people in the past, you've got not a bad front bench, but a very high proportion of the people in the backbench, and on both sides, don't have a clue about how to art articulate an argument. They can't say, here are the fundamental principles, and I'm going to argue it through passionately, but on the basis of examining the evidence. Barry, so, sorry, go on. No, 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 but the, the, the great paradox, which we might have time to talk about later, the great paradox is that this is the most highly educated cohort in Australian history. There are four and a half million graduates in Australia at the moment. And of those, I'm not saying all those four and a half million graduates will have a passion for, for politics, but you think with numbers like that, why don't you have a superior quality of debate? Because you don't. And the we, fact we, is... Yeah, no. no, go on. It's the only the only way we'll have coherence in this is if I let you speak, because because every second word you say strikes a chord with me. So, so do go on. Just well, now I'm in grave danger of forgetting what I said. All right, because that 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 was second. That's the ago. other thing I do very well. It's it's better. I'm I'm happier to follow your template. Yeah. All right. Well, it seems to me that hand in glove with that. Uh, is is that part of the the loss of passion uh, in the political parties, and particularly the Labor Party that you've been a part of all your life, is that uh, is that where ambition was partly self-interest, of course, but where ambition was much more tied to a desire to make a change, a desire to define the challenges the nation faced, and then work out policies that might do something about it. Now it seems to me that the pursuit of both parties and Labor's pursuit is much more about getting the power than it is about doing something with it once you have it. And, and I wonder why that is, and in your answer, can you just tackle whether the nature of the media today is a part of it, that where you've got at least 70% of the media output of the country, actually it's more when you go from print, it's 70% of the print output and then there's the television and radio output, put, which is influenced by the Murdoch media. 
and its capacity to shut debate down and to label people as not being uh, really fit or valid participants in a debate simply because they don't accord with the view of the editorialists of Murdoch's papers, is that a part of it? Is that a part of the reason that we don't seem to be able to sustain a debate for more than 10 minutes? We see this is an era of this is an era of retail politics. I mean, the, the the cliche in this case is absolutely appropriate, because an idea will come along and people will say, "But will it sell?" Now, it's extraordinary if you go back, say, uh, back to the 1970s and see the kind of issues that people like uh, Whitlam and, and Dunstan and Lionel Murphy and some of the contemporaries uh, were talking about, you see, they were passionate about issues like white Australia. They were passionate about issues like the recognition of China. They were very much concerned about abolition of the death penalty. And they, it's astonishing when you look back, uh, say, to the 1983 election, uh, which uh, Hawke won, to see what a very important role the, the Tasmanian wilderness played in that election yeah. campaign. Yeah. But my suspicion is if we had a comparable case to the Tasmanian wilderness coming up in 2016 or 17, the outcome would be different because they'd say, but there's jobs, jobs, jobs involved in it. You can't do anything that is, would interfere with jobs, jobs, jobs. Do you agree so, with me that that is fundamentally dishonest? The whole, Whether it's Donald Trump, Malcolm Turnbull, Bill Shorten, whoever it is, this mantra of promising jobs, 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 that none of them actually have the capacity really to deliver that in a coherent way <laughs> anymore. That that capacity is diminished. That capacity is diminished, but the important thing is getting across this idea which Trump uh, and the people around him worked out better than his opponents realised uh, it was that sense of conveying the idea of authenticity in inverted commas. And what you meant by authenticity was simply to say that you will tell people what they feel comfortable with and, and where you say, well, we mightn't like some of his language, we might think it's pretty crude, we might think that he's, well, you know, his attitude towards women isn't, isn't, isn't perfect, but, but he's the real deal. He's the real deal. He's authentic. Whereas you can see on the other side, uh, people uh, like uh, people, uh, even including Hillary Clinton, to say, well, we're not absolutely clear what it is that she stands for. I don't know whether you saw it, but there was a, a very interesting and rather surprising discussion that we picked up on, uh, on the web uh, between Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. At the, at the Bush Center for the Presidential Library. It's a very, very small library. Uh, and, um, <laughs> but it was very interesting what Bill Clinton commented. He said, he, when, when, he, when the campaign began and he heard something that Trump had said in Iowa, he said, oh, he said, this guy's got an agenda. He's, this guy's got an agenda and, you know, he might be difficult to beat. I was more interested in the sense by what he didn't say. He didn't say, mind you, my own, my own candidate had an agenda and maybe he was really saying she didn't have much of an agenda and he did. You might think it was 20, 30, 
40 years out of date, but it resonated with people who with people who felt that they were suffering, that their wage levels uh, were poor. I mean, it's amazing when you reflect that there have been, in our lifetime, two fundamental shifts of votes in the United States. One was after 1960, uh, well, really, one was after 1964, I should say, where with the Civil Rights Act, you had the vote of the old Confederacy went almost in one go over to the Republicans, and that's something that had been absolutely locked into the Democratic Party ever since the time of the Civil War. And the second is the fact that the white working class, the white English-speaking working class, has now transferred its allegiance overwhelmingly to the Republican Party, which was the party, of course, historically, of big capital. Now, it's an extraordinary kind of shift, but you can see that, I mean, it's, 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 if you reflect, a state like um, West Virginia, which used to be a reliably Democrat state, Hillary did not win a single county in West Virginia. Not one county. And the same in Oklahoma. She didn't win a single county in Oklahoma. But you can see that... Um, the difference, uh, and of course very much related to education and education levels, you can see that in a state like California where you've got terrific universities, you've got very high levels of university uh, education, the search hub of the United States, uh, she got an overwhelming uh, vote. But it wouldn't matter if she'd got 100% of the vote in California, it would have made her national plurality look even better, but it wouldn't have got a one more electoral college vote. And, um, you know, it, it's a reflection. Um, uh, Simon Sharma, the, the great uh, Anglo-American historian who also does television, made that uh, dichotomy uh, that he said you could divide the United States into two nations, uh, one is what he calls godly America and the other worldly America. And godly America constitutes the centre part of the nation. But it's much bigger, isn't it? Mm. It, is a, it is a much bigger part of the nation. Oh, it's a very, a very significant part of the nation. But you've got, and in fact, you see Trump in the end won 30 states out of 50. Not all as well highly populated as some of the others. But they're the areas where people on the whole don't have passports, they haven't travelled. They're a bit uneasy about, you know, the other the other kind of the world, and they see politics as being essentially local. I was very struck. A, a, a dentist friend of ours reported been in the states last year, and he'd been in one of the midwestern states, and he was talking to a family who seemed otherwise rational, and they said, they said, you know, they said we've never voted in a, for a presidential election before but we're voting this year because they said said the west coast the west coast uh, is run by homosexuals <laughs> and the east coast is run by jews and uh, if you uh, you know and we're 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 voting the american way and we're voting for trump so this is the astounding thing to the, the, i mean life is full of paradoxes but america by repute is the is the great standard bearer of democracy. It's the great 
standard bearer of good in the world, as its image has yeah. more often than not been presented. But it is one of the great dysfunctional societies in the democratic world. And, and there are so many schisms and so many contradictions. Uh, and it is so fundamentally conservative in every sense. And it is so intellectually, broadly speaking, narrow. Well, you can see in those central, in those central states what, what Simon Sharma called godly America. You've got uh, the, the fundamental institutions there he described as being the farm, the church and the barracks. They're the three, the three institutions, and they represent a traditional view of America, America of the 19th century. Mm. And uh, uh, to a very large extent, you see, that, the, that appeal to nostalgia is so dramatic. You can see that even the point where, when they, even when they look at the census projections to say in the next census... Europeans, Caucasians, Europeans will be a minority in the United States in the next census, is the, is the general projection. And you find that that's a kind of not too covert racial appeal to say, well, if we're going to establish what our tradition or reinforce what our traditional values are, this is the time we've got to do it. Hmm. And to say, well, we, we had a black president who we, you know, accepted through gritted teeth, but to then replace that by another uh, shocking change, i.e. having a woman president, that's really a step too far. And uh, Barry, uh, just, just yeah. um, come back to just the, the broad concept of democracy. Do you agree with me that Australians, by and large, have simply accepted it's here, we've got it, we inherited it? It's here to stay, no matter what. Whether we care too much about it or not, whether we give too much thought to how we exercise our vote or not, democracy is always going to be here. And whether that same assumption has also been made in America, and now you see in Donald Trump, I mean, it's hard to put any label on him other than ignorant, uh, but, uh, but if, you, if you add on some of the possibilities that this man's delusion to grandeur and his hunger for power and so on, um, the mere fact that Americans have voted this man into the White House, what does that say? Uh, and, and, and look at how Hitler came to power. He came to power uh, with some pretty good social programs. He came to power as an elected hmm. head of Germany. Yep. Uh, and it wasn't that long before they descended into fascism. So how fragile is democracy in those terms? How quickly can it change, in, well, even I mean, in a country I like America? I, I think what, what happens is that if, if there's no common language, you see, if there's no common language and they feel, well, if you've got people, say, in Oklahoma, who say, well, we don't, we don't know too many people who live in California, we don't know too many people who live in... And, we, and even if we did know them, we wouldn't have much in common with them. And... and now you've got a leader who says, in, in a sense, re reflecting a profoundly democratic ethos to say, you're my people. You haven't been to college. You haven't had certain advantages. I want your voice. I want your vote. 
And, uh, and that is very reassuring to people who say, well, I feel very insecure about the future. Maybe, maybe there was something in the past that can be brought on. I was just going to, if I could make one tiny correction to what you said earlier on. You know, it's curious about the Australian democratic tradition. You, you said, you know, we inherited it here. That's not uh, absolutely... No, I mean, our generation. That's, oh, I'm sorry. Yep. I was going to say, because in a well, way... Well, your generation and mine. But, but in, in a way... <laughs> oh, yes. But it, you'd have to say that Australia itself was actually more innovative. I mean, we had, mm. uh, you know, manhood suffrage long before Great Britain. We had the secret vote long before Great Britain. We had votes for women long before Great Britain. In many ways, we, we created our own democratic system. The first but, elected Labor government in the world. But, of course... And so then, lasted six days. Yeah, <laughs> but you've you, but you've got this this passionate sense of Australia articulating uh, a, a national interest, and now you see one of the other factors which we need to take into account is I think the something that I got profoundly wrong uh, in in Sleepers Wake uh, was I thought that the uh, development of the, the IT revolution, the information revolution, would immediately mean an end to tribalism, would mean people were more embracing the universal, they had access to so much more knowledge and so on, and it would be absolutely wonderful. And in fact, what's happened with the information, with the IT revolution, is it's reinforced the world of the personal. It's reinforced the world of the individual. And so we've had, I think, a, instead of a, an exponential growth in empathy, you've got an exponential falling off uh, in empathy. And you can see that one of the impacts about the changing nature of work, and, and this is also reflecting the changing nature of the trade unions, mm. once upon a time, if you had a large car manufacturing firm and you had a 1,000 people working under the same roof, and they were all together in the, in the same union and so on, then the whole idea of solid, solidarity and, and, and the collective reaction was very important, was very significant, because they all knew that they had something or other in common. But now, if those aggregations of workers have disappeared, and you've got a whole number of people who are simply working individually, and often casually, and could be picked off one by one, so that you go to 7-Eleven or indeed you go to Coles or, or Woolies and uh, 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 if you're lucky, you'll get some casual work and if you're unlucky, you might in fact receive even less money than you've been promised. Or, that you're, legal, or than you're legally entitled to. Absolutely. So the result is that we... we so that there's, it's not as if you say... Uh, here we are, we've got a whole collection of people who are going to rally around on certain issues. See, there's some issues, I mean, obviously, the future of, of, of Medicare and the future of medical benefits and so on is something where we still retain that emphasis on the collective because, after all, with an ageing population, with an ageing population and the prospect that an increasing proportion of people are going to need you know, serious surgery, serious uh, hospital care and so on, uh, that's, that is an issue that is absolutely profound. 
in reinforcing solidarity, but they're not many issues. Mm. And you can see now that one of the reasons that the significance of the public school system has to a large extent faded away is that and this is one of those very curious questions we've got to deal with very tactfully in education. You see, you, you've got the choice of, of, of choice often means segmentation. You say, what about the Pentecostals? Should they be able to have a church, a school of their own? Well, in a free society, absolutely. What about, what about Shiite Muslims? Should they be able to have a, a, a school of their own? Well, yes, if you have it for the Pentecostals, you've got to have it for them. Uh, and then you then start to uh, start to break down. What about uh, something where, uh, say, if if Somali kids are all going together, you've got a whole series of, of segmented schools, and the idea of solidarity, the idea of of, of cohesion within an education, where people are learning more or less the same syllabus, uh, disappears. I mean, in my former electorate, um, uh, after I left, there was a school there where, uh, a, a Muslim school, where the principal decreed that girls were uh, not to be allowed to ride bicycles because it was a known fact that young women who rode bicycles had lower fertility rates. Well, I mean, the idea is absolutely absurd, but nevertheless, if he thinks it, if he believes it, and he's in a position to enforce it. Then what does the what does the state do? Does the state intervene and say, <laughs> "How dare you? How dare you hold that absurd position?" Because you'd say, "Well, it's a free country, and you're free to say what you want." Mm. But if you say something that's obviously, uh, you know, um, it, it it's nutcase stuff. I just speaking of nutcases, Barry. I just had a vision as you were talking about girls on bikes of a boy on a bike with the actual bar coming up the middle if he slipped on the saddle. Yeah. That, that might impede his fertility a little bit too. Just um, uh, coming back to your point about, about the shrinkage of community with, uh, yep. with, um, with social media, uh, reminded me of a story I heard just the other day of three people, three young people in a room, two uh, young women and a young guy. Uh, woman one didn't like the guy particularly even though they shared a house, young woman too was aware of this. And as they were having the conversation uh, and the guy speaking, woman one says to woman two on a text, I suppose I have to suffer this. Uh, I guess I'll keep listening, but you know I don't like him. And so woman two is thinking, well, this is ridiculous. And I was thinking when I heard the story, well, all that was needed to complete the circle was for woman two to start discussing woman one with the man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so you've, and that, that is, that is a, uh, a real manifestation of what's going on, isn't it? That, yeah. That you've got all these little bubbles of communication going on, but no real wider sense of community developing. But you see, but the other thing too, because often you identify yourself, say, with a particular political party, in much the same way, say, as people identify themselves with a football club. You know, that what we talk about is identity politics. Hmm. To say, yes, I feel a fellow feeling for him, because you see, even even say Trump's manifest shaky grasp of the Middle East. 
uh, there'd be a, a lot of American voters who say, well, I've never been too clear about the Middle East either. There are a lot of things I don't know. He's my guy. <laughs> you know, yeah, do you, do what, you think what appears to be an obvious disadvantage, in fact, may, may be a vote winner. Do you think the Iranians might have seen a slight irony uh, as a country which actually, for all the Ayatollah's influence, actually still practices um, a form of democracy which, which is a lot more real than many other countries that take a vote? Well, and, uh, and looking on, as Trump is visiting Saudi Arabia, Trump, the representing the bastion of democracy, talking to one of his great, or that country's great allies, Saudi Arabia, which is absolutely, fundamentally anti-democratic. I'm sure that he doesn't understand the distinction between... I'm sure he doesn't understand the distinction between the Shiites and the Sunnis. And I don't think he understands uh, the extent to which Islamic State is, is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Sunnis. The Shiites have got nothing to do with it. And in fact, uh, the Shiites are now becoming victims uh, of, of, uh, of, of ISIS. But I, he, he simply doesn't understand that. And, but the, the argument is to say, if, you, if you're working on a particular demographic, and obviously the people who were advising him were, were, were really quite skilled in their campaigning. See, the, the Democrats very foolishly uh, assumed that they would win uh, Michigan. They assumed that they'd win uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, they assumed they'd win Wisconsin. Now, if, and the result was Hillary, I think it's true, didn't visit those states in the last month of the election. The total number of, if she'd got 100,000 votes more spread over those three states, she'd have won the presidency. 100,000 votes. She was three and a half million ahead in the, plural, in, in the plurality, in the popular vote. Didn't matter. It, because the way in which the electoral college operates mm. means that the critical thing, it doesn't matter if you win a state like California by one vote or whether you win it by three million votes. Uh, it's the, sole, the same outcome. Barry, in trying to understand the puzzle of Hillary, um, are you struck, as, as I am, by the contrast between the Hillary who came to power with Bill uh, back in 1992 yep. uh, and the Hillary of today? The Hillary of then was absolutely passionate about giving America a real health system. Yep. And she went at it. She went at it hard. And for something like six or eight months, she laboured over that with, with the Secretary of Health, uh, Bill, who sat around the Cabinet table. That was their job to get it up, and it was a disaster. It didn't work. And she then retreated, yep. as did their, uh, their desire to do anything really about health. Uh, so even though she came from a safe middle-class background, there was, there was a, at least a streak of the radical in her, and there was certainly passion. Well, the, the, the Hillary Clinton that we saw on the hustings was utterly devoid of yep. passion. And whatever sense of risk-taking she might once have had had been absolutely blown asunder. So is that the wear and tear of modern democracy on her, that you become so bloody pragmatic that you almost disappear? Partly that, but it's also there was a kind of wave of disillusion against the, against the Clintons collectively, uh, just as there... In, the United, in Great Britain had been even more dramatically against Blair. Say, well, they were successful. Yes, they won elections. But, well, when we come to think of it, 
they didn't fundamentally stand for values that we could get excited about. And that was why, uh, that was why uh, Bernie Sanders uh, had that uh, uh, early, very successful run, because, you know, although he was not, of course, uh, a long-standing uh, member of the Democratic Party, and in fact, on a whole number of issues like the gun issues, he was not uh, not particular. Were not good at at all. Um, uh, the fact that he say had been uh, a voter against going into Iraq, whereas Hillary, in the end, had been vo had voted in favour of going into mm. Iraq. These are all factors that meant that people who might otherwise have been excited about getting out to campaign, excited about the idea of the first American president didn't play a very didn't play a very vital outcome. It's curious though in some states, um, see in California, Hillary actually polled better than Obama right in California. yep it's a, it's very, very curious. if you look at the state by state, uh, uh, but it, it, there, was, there was something very very flat uh, about the campaign. But when you think of his what seemed to me uh, his um, appalling behavior, uh, against her, all this business about saying, you know, should be, she should be in jail, she should be in jail. That seemed to be so outrageous. I think there are a lot of people who said, look, in the end, the American people will come to their senses and yeah. they won't, in fact, really? vote for this guy. Really? Ronald Reagan won two. You know, the, after, after his first term, when Ronald Reagan ran again in 84, and I was living over there at the time, he had won 44 states against uh, a damaged Jim, Jimmy Carter oh, yes, in, in 76, in 80. Yep. And in 84, he was running against Mondale, who had been Carter's vice president. Uh, and and he had some shaky moments, uh, Reagan, in that first term. But uh, he actually increased his vote to the point where Mondale won one out of 50 states, and it was his home state of Minnesota. Yeah. One state out of 50. And that was probably the least intellectual of any, any president. Well, no, that would be a big sweep. Oh. Cert, cert, <laughs> certainly of the second half of the 20th century. So um, I want to, with the time we have left before we go to questions, I do want to go to Sleeper's Wake. Yep. Um, this was a book Barry wrote in 1982, and it was, it was, as it said, wake up. This is the future. It's not too far off. It's actually happening now. It's one of two moments in my uh, time of trying to come to grips with and understand and, and grapple with my own experiences of the changes in technology in my own life, in my own job. Uh, the first was 1970 or 71 when I worked for a Sydney tabloid named The Sun and I, was write, I wrote a five-part uh, feature series about how computers were going to impact on our lives. One was relating to medicine and science, one was relating to education, one was finance and banking, and we talked about this strange alien concept of sticking a, a bit of plastic in the wall and pulling some money out. Uh, various elements like that. But the one thing that really stayed in my mind from that series, and in a way echoed by your book, was a sociologist who had been a computer analyst, and so he understood mm. um, the digital world. And he warned that while on the one hand there was going to be this digital explosion and it was going to manifest itself in so many ways, uh, massive benefits to us but big questions for society. And it was going to be going, this was digital development, going like that, like a rocket taking off. 
And this was society's capacity to stay in touch with it, and he said it was going to be going like this. Hmm. Now, that is what's happened, isn't it? Oh, yes. And in Sleeper's Wake, you talked about exactly the same thing. You talked about, about people, about society finding itself at a stage where people were living longer but working less. That was just one manifestation. Of oh, it. Yeah. So just pick up on that and tell me about what, you, what drove you then and how you see it now. Well, I, I think what drove me really was uh, in part a kind of uh, um, childhood memory, I would say, of um, uh, Charlie Chaplin's great film, Modern Times. Because what you find is, uh, in, in modern times, is that image of the, of the worker uh, who's increasingly demoralised doing piecework bit by bit, bit by bit, that's not exciting or challenging, that doesn't allow, allow him to reach his full potential. And the question is whether you want to, whether you want to uh, create a whole number of jobs. I mean, clearly, if you, if you abolish the uh, reticulated water supply or if you abolish the, uh, uh, the bulldozer, you could employ thousands of people carting water in buckets, or you could employ thousands of people, uh, you know, digging up digging up the streets. And yet, would there be any point in doing it, or would you simply be having more and more completely dehumanised, pointless kinds of, of work? Yeah. The other thing that really struck me, and this is a dilemma that the Labor Party hasn't really quite got its head about, was if you look back. If you look back to uh, Marx, uh, one of the most interesting things about uh, Marx's early writing, you can find it in that astonishing book called The Grundrisse, The Foundations, which a lot of people don't. Marx was really looking for a situation where people were working less. His idea was to say, if you're working 60 hours a week now, if you could get that down to, to 40 30, 20, that'd be terrific. But you'd have to find other things to do that were worthwhile. Now we've got a rather strange situation where, in fact, people are saying, oh, we don't, we don't want the, tot the totality of work to diminish. We want to have the idea of two jobs or perhaps even three uh, in every nuclear family, you know, and we want overtime and we don't mind driving you know, long distances, an hour, an hour. But, but a lot of a lot of that barrier is to do with simply being able to live the life that people have grown used to living, the life that they might have inherited growing up as children, and that they want to at least maintain a life, if not improve the quality of their lives. And a lot of, particularly right now, where wages are actually not just flatlining but ah. going backwards. Yes, but I mean, you the, see the concept yep. of the of the two to three job household. The, the working poor, the term working poor has been coined in about the last 40 years. Yes, but, but the point I was trying to make, and obviously didn't make it clearly enough, was, that, um, <laughs> was that, that the answer is to have the more productive society, but to distribute the benefits. Yes. Yep. In other words, that you don't have to say you've got to go down on that yep. coal mine again or you yeah, can't yeah, maintain, no, yeah. you, can't, as, you, know, you can't pay the, the electricity bill. Uh, it's a matter, really, of a much more radical reorganisation of Absolutely. society. Absolutely, but another part of that of the equation is that in this world that is developing now, it's already happening, and it's just going to keep happening. 
uh, we're going to find ourselves, because again, governments seem incapable of being able to even yep. have the debate about how you distribute the work and distribute the benefits, uh, we are increasingly going to have a society where there will be those who will have the full-time yep. employment, uh, and many of them will actually be working, ironically, longer hours, but they will be the ones who have their finger on the button, they will have the key to the console, uh, and then there will be the mass who will have some who will have some, or in many cases, no work. And there will be the growing uh, irritation of those who have the, the, the hands on the button and have the full-time jobs and have greater power oh. and those that they will increasingly begin to see as the drones. Yes, and, and, but underlining that, and this goes back to what we were talking earlier about Trump and indeed uh, with, with Pauline Hanson, mm. this is where regional factors yes. are absolutely critical because if you're talking about uh, you know, the, the impact of, uh, of, of the IT revolution and what it will do to jobs, if you're talking about to people who live in in Vaucluse or, or, or indeed live in Point Piper or in, in Kew or, or Malvern, uh, they can absorb all that. But if you're in an area where you've got an economic monoculture, say the sugar industry, uh, and, uh, or indeed in coal towns, they say, hey, you can't do anything to serve the coal industry because if you do, the impact on this region is going to be absolutely decisive. And Except the, that mechanisation, mechanisation means in the sugar industry, anyway. in the coal, is, is doing it's it. going to do it. Has anyway. done it. Oh no, that's right. Well, this, but they won't face up to that. No, they and they. <laughs> no, and, they won't. And one thing that neither of neither of the major political parties, and you see, the Labor Party is obviously crippled in some way because uh, the uh, at one level. Uh, I'm sure Shorten would like to be able to say coal is the problem with uh, with climate change, the number one problem, because every every ton of coal uh, that's burnt produces 3.67 tonnes of uh, of CO2. So you know coal is absolutely the problem. But you couldn't persuade the Queensland Labor government to accept that point of view because they say, hang on. There are particular jobs, not just in mining, but in with school teachers, with with bankers, with real estate agents, with you know, if and unless you keep those jobs going, then you know the economy will go down the road. And I, you know, a, a friend who shall remain nameless, um, been asked to do a a survey of. Um, uh, you know, future health projections for Australia, and then was given the helpful advice to say, but there are a couple of writing instructions. You are not to mention the word sugar. You are not to mention sugar consumption because if you talk about sugar consumption in the context of health, that will immediately create an opportunity for Pauline Hanson. So you've got to keep away from it. Oh, so it they, and, and you'll also have to withstand the fury of the very organised sugar lobby. Yep, exactly. Well, that, the role of the lobbyists has been terrible. And and to add to it all, and perhaps this is a factor we, I should have mentioned earlier on, with those people who join a faction and say, I'll work my way up, I'll work at a union office, or I'll work in an MP's office, then I'll get a job, then I might be a minister, might be a shadow, and then on retirement, I'll become a lobbyist. 
Yes. Oh, I have to spend time with the family first. Have to, yes. Uh, time for my family, then off for the gambling lobby, off for the banking lobby, off for... And as you're saying it, I'm thinking, uh, yes, I remember that Labor person and that one and that one. <laughs> well, we've got a former Labor Premier of Queensland uh, as the face of the banking lobby. Uh, I can think of a federal uh, Labor senator who is one of the faces of the gambling lobby. And so it goes. Uh, that is one of the great uh, assaults on democracy in itself, isn't it? Not just the lobbying. I mean, what the lobbyists, lobbyists are doing is reflecting the power of the money behind them. Uh, how, um, how democratic was it the way the mining industry exercised its power against labour over the mining tax? And I'm not picking on them. There are no, many no. other examples that we can very easily come up with. I mean, the, the, the poker machine, the gambling lobby in New South Wales is extraordinarily powerful in dictating well, policy. Well, Victoria too. Victoria too. That is fundamentally, it, it has become fundamentally anti-democratic in itself, hasn't it? Well, you can see what happened the, with uh, it in uh, it, when when Rudd uh, introduced the uh, uh, the mining tax. Uh, the the mining lobby operated uh, thought very strategically, but they were aiming at particular members in particular seats, and simply said, "We've got the money to defeat you individuals uh, in your seats." And uh, don't even think of going ahead with this, otherwise it will bring the whole government down. And uh, it got the political party, the major political party, including the Labor Party, into an absolute panic uh, about it all. And the people who were giving them the most strategic advice uh, in their campaign against that Labor government uh, were former Labor people, not just, not just politicians but apparatchiks. Oh, that's, no, that, that's absolutely right. And, and, and linked to it... I mean, I, if you think about the size of gambling, we should say something about just a, a, another sentence or two, that, that according to The Economist's um, international survey, uh, Australia is number, number one in the world in terms of per capita expenditure on gambling. But you can't touch the gambling lobby because, again, the gambling lobby, uh, you know, will... will, will uh, particularise members and say to members, uh, look, you know, if you vote in favour of new gambling restrictions, we'll bring you down. And you can see even somebody who, with a very good uh, reputation like Tony Windsor. Uh, Tony Windsor went absolutely silent on the question uh, of gambling reform simply because said, oh, well, you know, it's a big issue and we've got to think a lot more about it. But he wouldn't take a strong line. And I can understand why, because they said, we're prepared to spend X million dollars into making sure you're defeated. And that's a very powerful, that's a very powerful argument. So the result is that um, the, the fact that you've got comparatively small, powerful lobby groups who can exercise a veto power is, is devastating with the Australian, with the Australian uh, political system. But... This is where the, the whole corrupting effect of lobbying is so devastating because you can see if you're a minister and a former colleague of yours comes in and says, I want to lobby you about a particular issue, you think, do I give him the door and, and say, get out, I'm not interested? Or do you think, hmm, 
maybe I ought to be contemplating what I'll be doing myself in three years' time, four years' time. Would I want my former colleagues, now succeeding me, would my, to show me the door or not? You say, well, I better, better listen to them. And, and, and then and that's the even worse, the you see, if the, if the lobbyist comes in and says, have you given any serious consideration to what you might be doing? Uh, now, is that corrupt? You say, there's not a single dollar involved. Not a single dollar passes hands. But is it a corrupt inducement? Well, it's certainly an attempt, an attempt to induce you. Anyway, look, we, we, I want to come to questions, but I'm going to ask this one more first. Um, and I know, I know your reaction to this, which is why I'm asking it. But Have we finished the introduction? <laughs> <laughs> we're, going to, we're going to actually expand this and take the rest of the day. Um, Tony, Tony Abbott, as part of his... Don't laugh. As, as part of his um, argument in favour of what he said was the democratising... Uh, of the Liberal Party branches in New South Wales and empowering the grassroots was to change the process of pre-selections to one where branch members each was able to have a vote and that that vote would count. And he argued that this would liberate the party and that the party would be more democratic by giving every member a vote. Now... Um, you don't believe that's true, right? No, I don't believe that's true because it, what it does lead to is, in fact, branch stacking on a, on a heroic kind of scale. I mean, it's ironic in some ways that um, uh, uh, Malcolm Turnbull should be seen as the victim of this because when he got the pre-selection for um, uh, Wentworth and, and, and defeated Peter King, they had... They had uh, uh, branch stacking on such a scale. I mean, they even had aliens came in from other planets <laughs> to join up to join up to vote. I mean, it was a, I assume you're not talking about the type that Ronald Reagan believed in. It was, it was, it was, it was phenomenal. But you can see now what happens is that uh, branch membership generally in political parties is very tiny. This is one of the negative sides to compulsory voting. I mean, I actually in favour of compulsory voting as a thank God theory. for that. In theory, but you could see in practice, you could have every member of the Labor Party on life support system, and it's possible that that's nearly true, uh, <laughs> on life support system, and the vote would still turn up. So it means that if you've got a pre-selection, uh, and there are probably only, I'd say, an average of about 150 members of the Labor Party in every federal seat, only about 150. So if you'd line, if you'd line up the Ruritanian Soccer Club and say to the Ruritanian Soccer Club, look, how many members we've got? 200, right. What if we join them all up? Would you be prepared? What do we have to do? Well, you'll have to turn up and vote at a pre-selection about once every decade. Oh, that's right. What do we get in return? Well, we see that your clubhouse is really run down. We can organise the local council to uh, fix it up. Is, is it a deal? Sure. And so what happens is the Ruritanians arrive by bus in order to cast their vote. Some kindly person goes along and tells them where they have to put the X or the 1 in the, in the number, and then they go away and they're never seen again. And that's what democratisation, in fact, means. You, you tend not to get people turning up. And, in fact, uh, the biggest... The biggest uh, 
branch in Victoria when Stephen Conroy was running it was the um, um, uh, 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 oh I've just forgotten it starts with the letter M but anyway it's it's a it's a branch in in the Jellybrand electorate which had 500 members 498 of whom were Turkish right <laughs> but they could never get a quorum. <laughs> Because they didn't need it. You see, the point was that, that the, the point is the factional leaders are traders. They sit down with the, and they trade, they say, what have you got to offer? And say, well, I've got 500 members from the Maidstone, from the Maidstone branch. They say, okay, well, I've got 300 Croatians from some other area. And, so, and, and they say, so, oh, well, Mate, let's, let's do a deal. Let's if, carve up the property. If the end result was out of that, you, you, you had the people pre-selected going into government with talent, and passion, and vision, and commitment, and being part of a process that developed good policy in government, you'd think, well, maybe we'll overlook this a bit. But it is fundamentally a part of the problem, isn't it? See, when uh, I got pre-selection for Lawler, there, there were 12, there were 12 candidates uh, against me, and uh, I, you know, I had to fight very hard because I wasn't a member of one of the major, one of the major factions, and I had in my advantage that. Uh, of the 12 candidates, most of them hated me less than they hated the others. <laughs> and I, I finished up getting the pre-selection simply because I, that I generated less fury than... Uh... I know a number of funny stories about this man in numbers, but we don't have the time. Um, I'm very quickly going to go to the audience. Um, can I ask you, because of the shrinking time, to keep your answer short, uh, this lady here. Speak very loudly. Australia is supposed to be a multinational, multinational country. country. So what do you think about, both of you think about not being able to stand or be a, a member of parliament or member of, and, and without dual citizenship? With dual citizenship. Barry? Look, I think it's a measure of the fact that there are so many parts of the constitution, uh, of which section 44 is a good example, uh, that relate to a period that has virtually no relationship to the situation in Australia. I feel a great deal of sympathy for some of the senators who've been, who've been excluded, and, but it indicates simply that so much of that in the Constitution is completely out of date and very, very difficult to interpret. And I'll be watching with fascination to see what the High Court does when it deals with the individual cases that are referred to it, have been referred to it by the Senate. But I can see that, I mean, I was looking at my own first passport um, the other day, and that was 1958, and on the outside it had British subject, and then it had the coat of arms of Australia, and then underneath Commonwealth of Australia. Strangely, there was not one word about the concept of Australian citizenship even though Australian citizenship had been created as, as recently as 1948, but it wasn't there in my passport. So, um, you know, I, it's, it's, it's amazing. I, um, uh, but what it reflects is the extraordinary difficulty of changing the constitution and the chances are even in a multicultural society of getting, uh, uh, getting a referendum carried at probably remote to vanishing point. Yes. So there has to be some other way around it. Question? I've got um, two young kids uh, who are... Right uh, up to your mouth. Uh, ...nine and 11, 
uh, and we live locally in Brunswick Heads. And those kids are um, often uh, in, introduced to behind the news and, and those types of news articles. So we ask them, what do you think of Donald Trump? And they say, oh, we all hate him at school. Um, and we ask, you know, what do you think of Malcolm Turnbull? And they say, oh, we're not quite sure about him. So they seem to reflect a lot of common uh, opinion. Um, and they're introduced to a lot of really interesting concepts at school at the moment in terms of computing and coding mm -hmm. and robotics. But they're also introduced to really fearful ideas around climate change and, and the future. Uh, and we often talked about a, a, a disrupted and a um, so disrupted economy at the moment and a disrupted society. Mm. Um, I was just uh, wanted to ask if the two of you could look into your crystal balls because you've had a little bit of history. I've I guess. only got one. <laughs> I'm looking at things. <laughs> Barry? And, and, and just kind of look into the future for my kids and sort of say in 20 or 30 years' time, what sort of world are they going to be living in? Part of the problem about the climate change debate is that, in a sense, the the, the more uh, pessimistic or indeed uh, apocalyptic the, the vision is uh, about what will happen with climate change, uh, there's a psychological reaction against it, a reaction to pull back. You can't believe it could be as bad as it could be. Uh, I think the uh, part of the problem is that if you reflect the, uh, uh, the huge increase in consumption per capita, that's the critical thing, the huge increase in consumption per capita, it means that the proportionality of greenhouse gases um, uh, may well get above that uh, very serious 2% uh, increase in the period since the Industrial Revolution. And <clears throat> if you get away from the idea of equilibrium, that's the important thing. You can't get away from equilibrium. Where, where CO2 is created, CO2 is absorbed. If, you, if the balance is there, you're all right. If it's out of equilibrium, you're not all right. And the great concern is that if the tundra in uh, Siberia in particular, if, if, the, if the tundra freezes, uh, sorry, if the tundra thaws, that's likely to <clears throat> release a tremendous amount of methane. And methane is almost 100 times more potent, molecule by molecule, than CO2. And if, uh, if, if that happens, if the methane is released from the tundra, then it's hard to see how the process, Paris Accords or not, it's hard to see how that process will be reserved. And the implications of that are very serious. Yeah. Okay, just, just quickly uh, on your broad point, I can think of any number of scenarios about what it might be, but, but to me, one of the given, given the challenges ahead of us and acknowledging that we could not even have uh, an honest and valid debate about such a fundamentally important issue as climate change without it being corrupted, um, to me, one of the absolute fundamental uh, issues is the future of media, is the mm, future right. of, of quality journalism, uh, because, and, and Thomas Jefferson said that if he had to choose for his country between having an elected parliament and having newspapers, he would have to opt for having newspapers. Now, he wasn't familiar with Fox television, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and 
my view would frankly be each needs the other. And you see that reflected yeah. in the dance they do. But these days, it's a pretty ugly dance. So uh, while ever you have an unhealthy media or a constricted media, I think almost inevitably you, can, you, you will have to expect an unhealthy and constricted democracy. Uh, and, unless, and unless and until we can have a full, open, well-led debate on these big challenges, uh, then, then you, you've got to end up pessimistic. I don't want to feel I'm a pessimist. I've, I've not been, a, all my life, I've managed to avoid becoming a pessimist or a cynic. But increasingly, I'm finding that harder. Sorry to end on that note. Yeah, yeah. Can I uh, ask you all uh, to show your appreciation uh, for one of Australia's truly great contemporary individuals? And to one of Australia's leading, leading contributors to the media, somebody who's shaped public debate and illuminated public debate in a wonderful and a six-time Walkley Award winner, <laughs> the great Kerry O'Brien. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2017. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.